Good evening. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, uh, distinguished guests. Uh, I welcome you at the uh, event organized by the Philosophical Society Praxis and also supported by the yeah. Faculty of Arts. It's my great honor to uh, welcome at the faculty Professor Ilan Pape. Uh, I will just say a few words. A lot of you, uh, lo lot of, uh, you probably know Ilan Pape, but still, Ilan uh, uh, Pape is Professor of History and Director of the European Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Exeter in Great Britain. Uh, he was born in Israel in 19. 54 to German Jewish parents who escaped Nazi Germany in the 1930s. Uh, Professor Pape obtained his uh, bachelor degree from the Hebrew University in Jerusalem in 1979, and the uh, uh, Dr. Phil from uh, from University of Oxford uh, in 1984. He was a senior lecturer in the Department of Middle Eastern History and uh, the Department of Political Science at, in Haifa University um, in Israel between 1984 and 2006, and also the chair uh, of the Institute for Palestine Studies in Haifa between 2000 and 2006. Ilan Pape, as you probably know, is the representative of what is uh, often called new history in Israel. He belongs uh, to a group of academics and activists who since the 1980s started to research and reinterpret what happened, especially during the years 1947 and 48 in Palestine. While doing that, he of course challenged the dominant Zionist narrative and uh, this made him to a highly, highly controversial Mm, a person in Israel. This evening lecture will be uh, based on Ilan Pape's uh, newest book, The Myths, uh, Ten Myths About Israel. Uh, in this book, uh, Ilan Pape examines uh, the most uh, contested ideas concerning the origins and identity of the contemporary state of Israel. The first part of the lecture will be dedicated to the history of Zionism. Uh, the, second part, uh, the second part to selected myths, uh, to the condition of democracy in Israel, uh, to Oslo uh, peace accords, to the uh, two-state solution, uh, and uh, the intervention policy of the Israeli army, and maybe some other uh, aspects. Uh, I hope the lecture will be followed by a discussion. And now, uh, Professor Kofi, the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, thank you for inviting me. It's a great pleasure uh, to be here and thank you all for attending uh, uh, this evening. Uh, the idea uh, for the book, The Ten Myths of Israel, uh, emerged <coughs> out of uh, years of activism on behalf of the Palestine issue and talking especially with young activists uh, in Europe and in the United States who felt that uh, quite often they don't have uh, enough information to uh, challenge uh, narratives and propagandas that they knew were not correct, but they didn't know exactly how to uh, face them. 
So it started with an article which I wrote many years ago in which I uh, claimed that the Israeli propaganda is based on particularly 10 points. And as you mentioned correctly, some of them have to do with the past, some to do with the present, and one or two are actually relating to the future. And uh, but then I decided that uh, an article was not, was not enough space to, to challenge accepted narratives. And I, I produced this rather small book which my idea was it would be a pocketbook that people could use uh, whenever they needed to uh, challenge uh, something that they felt was wrong, but they didn't always know enough about it. Uh, because sometimes your own emotion and sense of justice is not enough. Uh, knowledge is also an important part of uh, any debate. Uh, the second reason for writing the book was a conundrum that uh, really uh, follows me for, for many, many years. Uh, and, and this is the, the nature of the Israeli propaganda. The basic assumptions that actually sustain the Israeli justification for what the Zionist movement did in Palestine until 1948 and what the State of Israel has been doing since 1948. Uh, and. Uh, because I was educated in Israel, because I was born in Israel and I went through the Israeli educational system. Obviously, I did not uh, come out the way the educational system wanted me to come out. I'm sort of a flawed product of the Israeli production line. I'm uh, a defunct commodity, as far as they are concerned. Uh, but being aware that I was indoctrinated in that way helped me to look from the outside, in a way, and say, I can understand why Israeli Jews are buying into some of these uh, mythologies. But what I cannot understand how intelligent, really intelligent, educated people in the world are buying into these fabrication. Uh, and as you know, some of the great philosophers of Europe and some of the great human rights people, even in the United States, who on every other topic would have a profound, in-depth knowledge and a very good argumentation for what they support in Venezuela, Nicaragua, Chile, South Africa, so on. When it comes to Palestine, they suddenly sound so reductionist, so superficial, so unreasonable that we invented this uh, term called PIOP progressive except on Palestine. <laughs> and I wanted really to write this book to challenge the, the PIOPs of the world. Um, I don't know if I succeeded, but that was the, the basic idea. Uh, let me start with the first myth that uh, for me is not the most important one. Um, and I'm not going to present here uh, the myth today exactly the way I present it in the book which is a different uh, story. But it's, it's more or less the same myth that uh, troubled me for many, many years. And uh, I saw my children growing. And because they grew, of course, in my household, they were not brought up upon this myth. And they got into trouble in an Israeli school by really questioning that myth uh, in front of their history teachers, who could not come with any good explanation. And the best way to describe this mess is actually to 
to take uh, the story away from Israel and Palestine to Prague. And to think about a situation where someone knocks on the door of someone's uh, place in Prague at the mid, I don't know, dead of night, knocks on the door and says to the person who lives in a certain house, excuse me, I used to live here 2,000 years ago, uh, and therefore half of the house at least belongs to me. And then the, the person in Prague would say, okay, some, there are some nutcases in Prague, we, I knew about it, uh, offers him a, a glass of uh, wine maybe, and then calls the nice people who should treat them in an appropriate institution. But lo and behold, the next day, this guy comes with the chief of the police of Prague. And the chief of the police says, excuse me, this guy has a point. Uh, he has a document, 2,000 years old, the Bible. Uh, and, and according to that document, you, uh, he definitely deserves to have half of your house, if not more than that. Now, this, this kind of simplistic way of telling the uh, early Zionist claims for Palestine are very important. Of course, they were substantiated. And this is what, something very important for me in the book. They were substantiated not because they were logical. You can understand it's not logical. You cannot come to any place in the world and claim it by a 2,000 years history. This is ridiculous. It's not going to work. Uh, it's a pathetic argument, one should say. But it was substantiating. That was so interesting when you look at the early uh, ways in which Zionist uh, uh, ideology worked between, let's say, the inception of the movement in the mid-19th century into the actual colonization of Palestine in uh, the beginning of the 20th century. If you look at this period, you suddenly understand that what substantiated this demand of 2,000 years was not a Jewish point of view. In fact, as you know, most of the Jews in the world in that particular period thought that the idea of talking about Judaism as a national movement or a secular modernist movement was a heresy. Most of the, of the Jewish rabbis uh, at the period that we're talking about were totally against the idea of Zionism. Uh, because Zionism most, mostly, most than anything else, was a secular movement. It claimed that if Jews would be secular, they could be a national movement. If they would be a national movement, they could be safe and have a different future. And what they needed was a homeland to express their nationalism, the newborn nationalism. And they chose Palestine because of the religious connection, not the national connection. Of course, later on, the Zionist ideologues reread the Bible as a history of a Jewish nationalism 2,000 years ago. I don't think there were national movements 2,000 years ago, as far as I can understand history. But let's say there was a Jewish national movement in the year, 2000, in the year of the Lord, the uh, first AD. But this was not, uh, it took me time to understand, this is not what really uh, worked, because it still looked for many Jews even a, a, a curious uh, uh, argumentation that we are going to Palestine because we used to be there 2,000 years ago. It didn't work with, with a lot of Jews. But the Christian evangelical uh, churches, or some of them, the most prominent evangelical churches, especially in Britain and the United States, gave us a different uh, 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 kind of uh, power or legitimacy to this claim by saying it's not about what happened 2,000 years ago. It's what's going to happen 1,000 years away, ahead of us, when they looked at the return of the Jews as part of a divine scheme, 
And according to that divine scheme, the return of the Jews to Palestine, it's an old evangelical Christian idea, even the Catholic held to this in the 15th, 16th century. The idea was that the return of the Jews is an indication for the resurrection of the dead. The, uh, 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 it will precipitate the second coming of the Messiah. And, and, and that was part of a very clear uh, uh, theological uh, dogma. Now, of course, it helped that most of these evangelical priests and thinkers were also anti-Semites because they had a double bill. They could argue, finally, for taking the Jews out of Europe and on the same ticket get Jesus back. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, for an evangelical Christian, this is, this is the, a moment of joy. You get rid of the Jews and you get Jesus. The only Jew you want to have is Jesus. <laughs> so, um, so not surprisingly, this kind of uh, theology, uh, uh, which had representative in the British government, Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, was such a Christian Zionist. Uh, uh, Lord Balfour, in many ways, was such a person. And you had so powerful people, especially in Britain, and I don't have to tell you why Britain was important for that story, that said, theologically, the story is valid not because the Jews used to live in Palestine 2,000 years ago, because their actual return is important for Christianity. On top of it, you could build Islamophobic uh, ideas saying that it's better to have a Jewish British colony than a, an Islamic Jewish uh, Islamic British colony and so on. But I think this is very important <coughs> because you go in this country, you go to Sweden, you go to Germany, you go to the United States, this dogma is still powerful. I mean, the United States Christian Zionist lobby is stronger than the Jewish lobby than the, the, the pro-Israeli lobby, I mean, much stronger. And Israel relies now much more on the Christian Zionist lobby than it relies on APAC. Uh, so, so this myth is important. Uh, not that you can refute it. I, I cannot refute the fact that if, if I returned, not I, I didn't return, I was born in Palestine. That if my parents returned to Palestine, uh, Jesus began to pack. I, I, I cannot prove this. Uh, maybe he did or maybe he didn't. I don't know. Maybe he already bought the ticket. Uh, if he's wise, he, he, he probably bought it early on because it's cheaper. B but I, I don't know if it's true or not true. But, uh, and I don't care if it is true or not true. What I know is that this created a powerful theological slash ideological justification for an act of colonization in a period where you didn't need very strong uh, justification for colonization. But it was the end of the period when colonization was legitimate. You could occupy and colonize Algeria in 1830. You could also occupy and colonize Tunisia in 1882. But later on, it became difficult. And instead of colonization, the world witnessed decolonization. So actually, the Zionist colonialism or colonization of Palestine begins when the world begins to have second thoughts about the moral foundation and the political wisdom of colonialism. Uh, so I ask myself, why didn't it all affect the PR of Zionism, the support for Zionism? One of the reasons is that this particular colonization was accompanied by a very strong Christian evangelical uh, justification. 
And I think some, in most, many books you won't find this connection. Or the, the basic idea is that Zionism was first a Christian idea before it became a Jewish idea. And that explains to me today the force of this ideology and its resistance to international rebuke and uh, why it's still supported widely despite of what it means for the Palestinian and the people who live there. So this is one example where you have a historical myth where, where you don't need to argue, and I don't do in the book, you don't argue whether it's correct or not correct. I mean, I mentioned in the book the fact that there are some historians like Shlomo Zand and others who even want to show us, to prove to us, that the Jews who arrived in Palestine in the late 19th century are not really the descendants of the Jews who were exiled by the Romans uh, uh, 2,000 years ago. Uh, Shlomo Zan claims, and I think he has a point there probably, that most of the Jews, in fact, were not exiled for Palestine. Only the elite was exiled. And the Jews who stayed in Palestine became the Palestinians. They're part of the Palestinian people today. So they didn't have to return and redeem. They were there. They were there. It makes sense to me. I mean, I, I'm, I'm always worried about 2,000 years' histories. I mean, uh, all this, the, the ability to prove uh, that the Greeks today are the descendants of the ancient Greeks or the uh, Italians are the descendants of the ancient Romans. I, I mean, I can understand the necessity for looking for your ancestors uh, 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 deep in time because they cannot come back and say we are not. Uh, but uh, basically, I, I, I don't think it's easy to prove these things. But of course, Israeli archaeology is very important. You know? I mean, Israeli archaeologists go around. They can uh, excavate. We always say in Israel, it's the only place where archaeologists do not excavate with fine tools. Because if you excavate with fine tools, you get to the, Arab, the Ottoman period, the Arab period, the Islamic period. They're not interested in it. So they're being bulldozers. They want to go directly to the Roman period uh, to show that Palestine was Jewish and then it was Nothing happened until the Jews uh, returned. And in the book, I'm trying to show that actually secular Western academia, long after the Christian Zionist uh, helped the Zionist movement create this mythology that sometimes is described as a land without people, waiting for a people without land. Part of that mythology went into the Western academia. I don't know if you are familiar with uh, one of the main tools that until recently was used to teach the history of the Arab-Israeli conflict uh, in many universities around the world. It's called the Atlas of the Arab-Israeli Conflict, prepared by the late uh, 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 British historian Sir Martin Gilbert. Martin Gilbert is more known as the biographer of Winston Churchill, uh, but he also wrote the, uh, 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 this uh, uh, atlas. And this atlas is very indicative of the kind of narrative I'm trying to challenge in the book Ten Myths. Uh, you know, sometimes through maps you can understand a narrative. In, in this atlas, uh, the history of the conflict begins in biblical times, which is by itself pathetic. But anyway, the first map is Palestine in biblical times, as if it has any relevance. Anyway, anyway then you have uh, Palestine uh, in the time of the Romans, the second map. The next map is Palestine at the time of the Crusaders. Between the Crusaders, which is kind of medieval history, and the arrival of the first Zionist settlers in the late 19th century, there is no map. Nothing happened of significance between 1200 
1882. And it took a lot of work by Palestinian historians, by other historians, to reintroduce the people of Palestine into this bit of history, which shows that Palestine was not a land without people. It was a land with a thriving community that had its urban centers, it had its countryside, and in the beginning of the 19th century, underwent a process of modernization, began to adopt a national identity long before Zionism arrived in Palestine. And this is not just an intellectual curiosity, who is right and who is wrong. This is important for our discussion about Palestine today. This idea that whatever you think about the push factors, and there are noble and understandable uh, reasons for why Jews were seeking a safer place than Europe, or even why they wanted to redefine Judaism as nationalism. There's no problem with that. But what is problematic is the place that they have chosen and the fact that someone already lived there when they decided to implement the new idea of Judaism in a new safe place at the expense of a population uh, that lived there. And this is why it's it was so important for the Israeli academia, for the Israeli cinema, for the Israeli politicians to stress that actually Palestine was quite empty when the Jews arrived there, so that the noble act, and it is a noble act, of saving Jews from Europe, or even if you want a noble act of defining, if you want that, Judaism as nationalism, did not create any suffering. It did not result, actually, in a huge human catastrophe that casts a big question mark on the validity of the project and later of the state of Israel. And I think this is something that needs to be discussed, not just as an academic, as I say, uh, abstract idea. It has a lot of, it has political implications for, for, for our time. Another uh, uh, myth that I'm, I'm trying to, uh, which is connected to this, and I'm trying to deal with in the book, is uh, the fact that Zionism uh, was not a colonialist uh, movement. And I must say that for, for uh, many years, uh, it was not easy to challenge this uh, main argument by Israeli academia that you cannot, uh, if you teach the history of colonialism in a Czech university, you cannot include Zionism in it. It was not easy to challenge it because Zionism didn't have a mother country. Uh, it was not a classical, and it isn't a classical colonial uh, movement, easily uh, understood as a counter argument. But then, uh, uh, 20 years ago, uh, a, a, an old new idea resurfaced, which I think clarified this point in a way that nowadays Israeli scholars have no idea how to challenge it. And this is the idea of settler colonialism, which is different from classical colonialism. Settler colonialism is exactly cases like Zionism, where people who were persecuted in Europe uh, were leaving Europe because they, Europe was not safe. It doesn't matter whether they were persecuted because of their religion, because of their culture, or because of economy, but they were persecuted. And they were looking for a different place, a safer place, but they also didn't want to leave Europe. So they wanted to recreate the West, recreate Europe in a different continent, in a different place. And uh, in a way, they sort of bought a one-way ticket to these places. And uh, they had two major problems. One was uh, 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 they could not do such an act of transforming themselves from one uh, continent to the other without the power of an empire. 
So they all needed an empire, and the British Empire in particular was helping settler colonial communities to develop in the United States, in Australia, in Canada, in New Zealand, <coughs> sorry, South Africa, and in Palestine. And in all these places, uh, Britain hoped that these settler communities would be part of the British Empire. But all these places, at a certain point, felt strong enough to stage a war of liberation against the British Empire. This is why in South, apartheid South Africa, in Israel, and in the United States, people celebrated the Day of Independence as independence from the British Empire, not an independence from anyone else. So this was one problem, which shows you that Zionism was very similar to the movement of white settlers who went to North America or to Australia or South Africa. The second, more important uh, common feature for these movements is that the main obstacle for creating, a, a, not just to finding a new home, but to finding a new homeland, the major problem was that someone else already lived in those places. And uh, there were certain mechanisms that were activated the moment the settler community encountered the reality that someone else lives in those countries which they deemed to be theirs by right, either by right of religion, by right of power, by right of the Western supremacy. Each settler community had different justification for taking over someone else's land. But the most important problem was the indigenous native population. And certain mechanisms were activated in Palestine, as in the United States, as in South Africa. One, the most important one, is the a mechanism which says the, there is a need to remove the indigenous population. It's an obstacle. It's a demographic obstacle. Every settler colonial movement has two dimensions. Space, geography. You need a space which makes you a viable a project. And you have a problem with the people in the space. So it's demography and geography, if you want. And you take the, demography, the geography by force, but it's far more complicated what to do with the demography. In the United States, they solved the problem by genociding the native people, as they did in Canada, as they did in Australia. In South Africa, they invented all kinds of mechanisms that eventually were institutionalized as apartheid. It was not genocide. It was a different one. In Palestine, eventually the Zionist movement chose ethnic cleansing as the best means of having the country or the space without the people uh, uh, on it. There were other mechanisms which are very interesting, and if you understand them, you understand why the conflict continues and why all the attempts to solve the conflict have failed so far. One very important mechanism, and you can see the similarities between the white people who came to South Africa, the people who came to North America, and the people who came to Palestine. The, 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 the interesting mechanism, most intriguing one for me, is the fact that these foreigners see themselves as indigenous. Immediately, when they land, they say, we are actually the indigenous people. Now, the best way to ensure that you are regarded as indigenous is to de-indigenize the indigenous people. And look at America. The, and and it, it, the Americans also appropriated the Native American history. They left even the Native American names. They even give their weapons Native American names, you know, Apache, Tomahawk, I mean, after they genocided the Indian, they called, appropriately, they called uh, weapons of mass destruction in the names of Indian uh, tribes that they have destroyed. Uh, I mean, I don't, I don't know if the Israelis would ever call the tanks Dir Yassin, but this could still 
uh, ho happen. Uh, uh, this, is, this is the kind of appropriation that happens. You, you suddenly make sure that the indigenous are the aliens. They're not just aliens, they're dangerous aliens. They cannot be trusted as aliens, and you are the rightful owner of, of the land. Now, Zionism is an amazing classical case study for this. The first Zionist settlers who arrived in the late 19th century, immediately when they wrote home, and as I said in another lecture, we are very lucky as historians, the Zionist settlers did not stop writing. I don't know what's about them, but they did not stop writing. Every mosquito bite, every temperature that was risen, everything they wrote in letters and diaries, I can show you in my house. It's mountains of, of every, I don't think I, I will ever manage in one lifetime to read everything that they have written. But from the little that I did read of what they have written, it's very clear that from the first moment when they are encountered with the mythology or with the uh, fabrications of mythology, because they were told in Romania, in, in Russia, in, the Ch in Czechoslovakia, they were told that they are coming to an empty land. But someone is taking them from the boat and they speak Arabic, which they don't understand. Uh, Jaffa is an urban center, so it's not really empty. And they spend the first night with these people. They don't exist, their hosts. So they're right back home under, not the lamp, I would say probably uh, the oil lamp. They're right back home and says, we are staying in the house in the aliens who usurped our uh, 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 homeland uh, 2,000 years ago. It's amazing to, to write these, to read these texts, because it's so powerful. It is so powerful. <coughs> and one, one problem Jews who came from Europe have, uh, because of anti-Semitism, Jews were, especially in Central and Eastern Europe, Jews were not allowed to cultivate land. They had no idea how to cultivate land. So they needed the Palestinians to teach them how to cultivate land. And, and uh, immediately they say, oh, we have to be better because we are, cultivation of the land is best if it's done by the original people of the land, and so on. So they are working very hard, and it's typical to, to the uh, white people in America as well. You, you appropriate the customs, behavior, and even the dressing, the dressing of the local people in order to get rid of them, right? So you use uh, uh, people who are Native Americans who are good in finding other people you don't want to find the other people in order to greet them. Like all armies, you want to find nice people and shoot them. And, and, and this is what, what, what happens also with what we call Orientalism in Israel. Long before Edward Said was talking about Orientalism, Israelis were the experts on Orientalism. That is, you are, you are very appreciative of many things that the Orient has to offer, but you don't want to be Oriental. You want to use these uh, 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 means of Orientalism in order to turn Palestine into a Europe. And as I say about another myth in my book, this de-indigenization of the local people was not limited to people. De-indigenization of Palestine, I hope this term is, 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 is clear to you, to de-indigenize. If you want to make it more specific, is to de-Arabize Palestine. This kind of process was not limited to people. It also affected the landscape. One of the most uh, 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 amazing, I don't know which adjective to use, uh, but one of the most amazing engineering of landscape that the Zionist movement did came in the aftermath of the 1948 uh, war. 
In that war, as you know, probably some of you know, Israel destroyed half of Palestine's villages. Out of 1,000 villages, Israel demolished 500 villages. And uh, on the ruins of the villages, the Israelis either build Jewish settlements, like the whites in America, they used to call these settlements in names that resembled the Arabic names. The, the naming was never a problem. So Ma'an became Ma'an, uh, uh, Yazur became Yagur, uh, Safuria became uh, Tsipori. Uh, the whole idea was that actually the Arabic name uh, was taken from a, an ancient Hebrew name and therefore it's an act of redemption. But most of the villages were not replaced by Jewish settlements. They were replaced by a huge project of planting European trees over the ruins of Palestinian villages. The Israeli Ministry of Agriculture between 1948 to 1950 imported 10,000 European pine trees to be planted over the ruins of Palestinian villages to have two effects. One is, of course, to hide the fact that there were Palestinian villages there. And the second one, they wanted to feel in Europe. They, did, they never liked the, the, the Arab kind of Mediterranean uh, 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 landscape. So that, I, I just have to report to you these, these a, a bit like settlers and air condition, um, uh, these pine trees are not doing too well. I, I hope you don't mind, or you do mind, I don't know if you care about pine trees. Uh, uh, but uh, these pine trees are very ill in many places, and kind of a poetic justice, uh, the old Palestinian orchard sometimes uh, peeps through the, uh, the ruins of these uh, trees. Similarly, very interesting, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, who toured the city of Haifa after it was taken from its, uh, after its Palestinian population was expelled, uh, he tours the city of Haifa and he writes in his diary that there are too many Arab houses in Haifa. So the city looks too Arabic. And he uh, orders the destruction of 230, if I remember correctly, houses so that the city would look less Arab and more European. So this is part of settler colonialism, I would say, preoccupation with making sure that the landscape, the people, the culture is Europe. You want to re... One can sympathize on a certain level with this. You were kicked out from the culture in which you were very important. There's no doubt. Uh, Prague knows it. The Jews were very important to the progress of, of Europe. And rightly, they felt offended by the fact that they were expelled and had to run away. So they, but they still felt Europeans. They wanted to recreate themselves as Europeans. And in the way stood the fact that they chose a place which was not part of Europe. I mean, Israelis still hope that they are part of Europe. They play football in Europe, not so well. They are doing the Eurovisions uh, uh, in Tel Aviv. I hope you will not go to the Eurovision Tel Aviv, but that's another story. Um, they try, and the Israeli wet dream is uh, that an earthquake would take Israel and append it uh, to Italy, or even better, to Norway. Uh, but it's not going to happen. Israel is in the middle of the Arab world. It's not in the middle of Europe. And they chose to come to an Arab country, not to a European country. But you know, if you don't, thank God, if you don't genocide the indigenous people, there's an incompletion. There's an incompletion. And that incompletion, namely, that you, you might have taken the whole land. And in 67, Israel took the whole of historical Palestine. You might take all the land, but you don't get rid of all the people. And what the Israelis never thought would happen, they didn't think that the Palestinian refugees 
would be the people to resurrect the Palestinian national movement. This is something they have thought would never happen. It's very clear. They thought that the refugees would sort of disappear. Uh, that as some of them we used to say that the old would die and the young ones would forget. And exactly the, ha the opposite happened. It was the refugee camps that kept the, the story of Palestine alive, much more than the Palestinians' insight in, ma in many ways. But this, some, but this incompletion, the inability to deal with what the Israelis like to call the demographic problem of Israel, uh, is driving people mad. I must tell you, the Israelis have a problem. I have this. I, I used to have this psychotic problem. If you deal day, day in and day out with demography, it's not healthy, I can assure you. Don't do it if you can. Uh, if you keep counting how many Arabs are born, how many Arabs there are between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean, it's not a very healthy preoccupation, especially uh, 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 in, in a world where people want to cherish democracy that is blind to your origin, your nationality, your color, uh, even to your status as an immigrant or a, a native uh, person. But, but this, is, this is the preoccupation of settler, com settler colonial movements that, in a way, are more humane than the early settler uh, uh, colonial movement because they do not resort to genocide. They don't resort to genocide. They're left with the native population, either as refugees on the borders or inside. Now, when you, I'm, one of the other myths I'm trying to, to uh, refute uh, in the book is the myth that uh, the 1967 uh, war should only be seen as an Arab attempt to destroy the state of Israel. The poor little Israel defends itself and has to occupy the Golan Heights, the Sinai Peninsula, uh, the West Bank, uh, in order to protect itself. What I try to show in, this, uh, in the chapter in the book, but also I wrote another book called The Biggest Prison on Earth, that actually the main political body and military body in Israel between 48 and 67, as a typical settler colonial state, was planning the occupation of the West Bank ever since 1948. And yes, Nasser's policy provided the opportunity for doing it, but uh, there, was no, there was all the time a, 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 a kind of a, a patient waiting on the side of Israel for that historical opportunity uh, to appear. And this is why about 12 hours after is Israel occupied the West Bank, it was already clear that Israel will never leave the West Bank, that it's part integral part of Israel. Israelis since then have an argument, not about the space. Every, every Israeli agrees that the space is necessary for, for, for Israel. The argument is what to do with the population. Because you expelled one, almost one million Palestinians, and then you integrated another million and a half. So from a settler colonial uh, logic, it was, not lo it was very logical to have the space, but not to add an additional number of Palestinians. And Israel since then is troubling itself and the other world and the rest of the world of how to deal with this conundrum, that in a way it's a successful project in terms of geography. It has the borders they always, they always wanted. Uh, they claim that they now have a natural border uh, in the east, the River Jordan. I don't know if you've seen the River Jordan. Even if you are geriatric, at the age of 95, and you have one leg, you can cross the River Jordan. So if you think that this is a national, natural uh, kind of you know, barrier for invasion from, from the east, it's, you can always think that if you haven't seen 
what is called the River uh, uh, Jordan. Never mind, that, that's a side story. Uh, but what is important is that uh, this is one of the justification for having this space. But what to do with the people? What to do the, with the people? Do you expel them as you did in 48? It was clear you cannot expel them in the same way you did in 48. Do you give them Israeli citizenship? No, you can't give them Israeli citizenship because they would become the majority in the Jewish state. So what do you do? You try to find a kind of a citizen-less citizenship to offer them, and then you play with the idea of a, one, of a, a Palestinian mini-state or state minus or diet state, uh, kind of a Bantustan, and it doesn't work because the stupid Palestinians don't accept this generous uh, uh, Israeli offer to live in a Bantustan all their lives. Shows you who the Palestinians are, how they don't never, always miss opportunities for peace. And, um, but the problem is that you, are, you remain in a situation where we are now today. Between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean, there are 12 million people, 6 million Jews who have privileges, and 6 million Palestinians who don't have basic human and civil rights. That's the, situa that's the, the historical juncture that none of the mythology can explain to the Israelis or to the rest of the world. So what do you do if you have a situation by which you are not the demographic majority. And all your ideas of democracy, are, and that's another myth I'm exploring in the book, the idea that democracy is connected to a demographic majority of an ethnic group. Democracy is not based on ethnic majority. I, I keep telling it to my Israeli students, I mean, before I was kicked out from the Israeli university, I used to say to my Israeli students, that uh, their teacher in the political science department are wrong because they keep telling them that ethnic majority is a democratic idea. Ethnic majority is a non-democratic idea. It's a fascist idea. It's a nationalistic idea. It's nothing to do with democracy. It's, it's excluding another group of people who are citizens because of their ethnicity. So it cannot be a democratic idea. But that's how Israelis grow, that this, this Again, these are the kinds of mythologies like the two I lived here 2,000 years ago, which, you know, if, 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 if you are an Israeli like me that one day looked at this from the outside, you cannot, you search in vain for the logic of this. But when you are inside the system, it sounds to you very logic. Uh, but what would you do if you are not the majority? <coughs> what, what are you going to do? If your idea of democracy is based on ethnic majority. And, um, well, the Israeli electorate has already told us in 2015 and is going to tell us in the coming election. They have a, they have a solution. They have a solution. In this moment of the historical juncture, when Israel finally found out that it has only two options, either to become a fully apartheid state or to become a fully democratic state, it seems that the Israeli electorate prefers an apartheid state over a democratic state. Because a Jewish democratic state, everyone understands now in Israel, is impossible. I mean, not everyone. There is something called, I don't know if you heard about it, it's called the Zionist left, which is a, a extinct species. We have to really keep an eye on it because it's, it's a bizarre combination of liberal colonialism, uh, uh, enlightened uh, uh, occupation, and so on. Uh, that, that exist, uh, they disappear because they have no uh, moral basis really for existing. 
uh, or any logical uh, basis for existing, but they do still exist. Uh, but uh, most of the Israeli electorate does not play this game of uh, being an enlightened uh, occupier. They, they say, and one can at least understand the logic, I don't agree with it, and I'm quite uh, frightened by it, but they say, since we now have only two options, whether to, whether to have an ethnic Jewish state or to have a democratic non-Jewish state, we prefer the ethnic Jewish state, whatever the price. I think they don't understand the price. They don't understand the price. They will understand the price, despite their huge military power and their relatively solid economy, they will pay a price that I am, because they are my own people, I'm very afraid of that price. Uh, but they, they, don't, they don't see it, unfortunately. They don't see the price that they're going to pay for this decision. But they took the decision. Israel as a society already took the decision. The question is, when would the world react to this decision? When would the Arab world react to, to this decision? When would the Palestinian react to this decision and redefine their a mode of struggle as a liberation movement in that kind of uh, uh, reality. But I, I, I'm, I'm, this is now becoming a very clear uh, trajectory that Israel uh, is, is taking, where actually, in a very absurd way, I should rewrite the book of the 10 myths of Israel. Because once there is a decision not to play this game of a Jewish democratic state, there are a few uh, chapters which are redundant in my book because the, these kind of mythologies that Israel is, is a Jewish democracy were needed for the liberal Zionists but are not of any uh, uh, use for the right-wing Israeli parties that are now dominating uh, Israeli uh, uh, politics. Let me uh, finish so that we have enough time to, to, to answer questions and discuss comments. Uh, with the last myth that I deal with in, in the book, and with this I would finish. As you can understand, I haven't provided you with all the mythologies, but especially those which are important for me. I'm, I'm dealing with the mythology that surrounded the, the Oslo peace process. Uh, I mean, the very, very idea that this is the process is the myth. Uh, it was never, the process is, is something that you take from one place that it means meant to lead you to another place. Uh, but when you are driving a car, a manual car at least, well, maybe even automatic car, and it's on neutral, it doesn't matter how much noise you do, you don't move. Uh, and I think that the, 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 to call it a process is, is one of the myths, because it was not meant to be a process. It was meant to help the Israelis, and it was a very clever solution, to solve the conundrum I was describing before. How can I have especially the West Bank, maybe not so much the Gaza Strip, but how can I have the West Bank uh, uh, without having the people who live there? Uh, and, and one of the ways you can do it is to tell the world that in order to police millions of people in the West Bank, and now we have a, a third generation of Israelis who are policing millions of Palestinian civilians, it's, it's a huge apparatus to, to police so many millions of people. So in order to justify that, especially among liberal Jews, progressive Jews, progressive sections, uh, progressive people around the world, you say, you know, these uh, policing uh, uh, objectives necessitate, unfortunately, some non-democratic means. We agree. I mean, we need to be very brutal and cruel. You cannot do it without some measure of force. But the idea was, 
you have to understand that this is temporary. All these violations of human rights that the United Nations has voted against for so many years would disappear once there will be peace. And why, why there will be peace? Because there's a peace process. And we'll get there. Now, of course, anybody who lives in Palestine knows that uh, 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 what it really means is a kind of an international umbrella of immunity to continued uh, 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 oppression of people on a daily uh, basis in, in the West Bank and, and, and the Gaza Strip. So uh, this is the first part of the myth of the peace process, that it's meant to bring a solution to the conflict, where, whereas it's actually meant to bring a solution to the settler colonial dilemma of how to have a place without the people who live in it, without expelling them. These are not easy uh, 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 balls to, to, to juggle, you know. Uh, the second myth is that, which was developed with the help of American uh, political scientists and uh, business school kind of experts, that, uh, which was brilliantly described by the former American Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, who said that in order to solve the uh, uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, you have to make everything which is visible, divisible. Partition. Divide. Divide the land, divide the resources, divide everything. Divide the blame as well. Uh, now, this paradigm of parity, of course, is not working when the balance of power between Israel and the Palestinians is the way it is. It does not become a, 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 a fair American business like approach, we'd say, uh, you know, I have a very fair deal to you. You will get 15% of the land, they will get 85% of the land. Now, if you look carefully, 15 and 85 are actually 50-50. So there were some Palestinians who wanted to convince themselves that the 15% are 50, uh, but even they don't exist uh, anymore. Maybe some of them still sit in Ramallah, but most of them are, are gone. And, 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 and this is the kind of fabrication that was creating the idea that this is a fair idea of partition, whereas if you just examine it for five minutes, you see there's nothing fair about it. This is, again, a solution to the conundrum of the settler colonial state and not a basis for reconciliation and ending a conflict that began in the late 19th century. And therefore, I think that even genuine believers in the two-state solution should have understood that partition in the case, not everywhere, not everywhere in the world, but partition in situation of colonialism is the tool of the colonialist, is never the demand of the colonized. Can you imagine the FLN suggesting to the French to have half of Algeria as a way of solving the struggle uh, in the 1960s? Or even uh, 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 the Viet Cong saying to the Americans, you know what, the best solution is to divide Vietnam into two uh, states. The colonizer or the people who's someone else settled in their home country would never agree to partition. I mean, they may be forced to accept partition, but they will never agree to this. And this is why even Abu Mazen is not willing to say to Netanyahu, uh, I will recognize Israel as a Jewish state. He cannot recognize Israel as a Jewish state. He can agree to a two-state solution, but he will never recognize Israel as a Jewish state because this is not a demand of a liberation movement that all we want is 12%. Thank you. We're so happy with the 12% of our homeland. That's what we were fighting for all our lives. No. 
No, but we, we, there is a, he would claim there's a balance of power I surrender to. But that doesn't work too well. That doesn't work too well. And that's why, and with this I would finish, in the book I claim that uh, 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 for good and bad reasons, for good intentions and manipulations, for uh, years uh, we were looking for a key that we lost where there was light, but not where we lost the key. We wasted 50 years. In, I mean, those of us who were genuinely involved in reconciliation, either on the ground or from the outside, we wasted 50 years uh, of dealing with what we called a peace solution that had no relevance whatsoever to the reality on the ground, to the real issues that I was trying to describe today, to the ideology that is at the heart of this conflict, and to the injustices that are making this conflict one of the longest modern conflicts in our times. And uh, we need to embark on a very different way if we want to, uh, uh, to solve this problem. And the book ends with, with the idea that we should change the language. We're not looking for a peace process in Palestine. We're looking for a decolonization. And we are not uh, looking for the creation of an additional state. We're looking for recreating of a just state for everyone. And I think once we adopt this language and we change our consciousness about what is there, we will identify correctly the challenges and hopefully would find a way of dealing with them in the future. Thank you. Excellent, like friend, for introducing uh, your newest book. Uh, now, uh, I would say everybody can raise hand and questions. Uh, yes, yeah, so one question was uh, yeah. uh, about uh, the Trump, uh, because Trump. He was speaking about uh, the, the to make one plan, peace plan for uh, for uh, for uh, Jewish and uh, for Palestinian people. Right. And in the beginning, he, he was speaking about uh, quite clear about one country for both uh, nations. Yeah. But later, he he start to change a little bit. I don't know. Maybe you know something uh, better than we. Yeah. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't pay too much attention to what he says. Uh, uh, that is not that important. And you're right, because uh, he speaks out of the limited world that he has. And at first, he talked about one country. He thought that, I don't know, he probably thought that sounded original and, and uh, refreshing. And then someone, probably his son-in-law, told him, that's not what the Israelis want to hear. So he, he changed his line. No, I, I think. To be honest with Trump, uh, one should say that he, his approach, or his administration's, rather, approach to the Palestine question is not that different from the previous administrations. We should use, I mean, the style is different. Some of the actions are more provocative, like moving the um, em embassy from Tel Aviv to uh, uh, Jerusalem. But in many ways, uh, he continues the lines of all the previous American uh, administrations who were less honest about their real intention and policy, but they all gave carte blanche to Israel 
all of them allowed the settlements in the West Bank to develop, and all of them had never allowed the United Nations to impose any kind of sanctions on Israel through the power of veto in the uh, Security Council. So at least on the issue of Palestine, I don't think Trump is a big revolutionary or he brings to the fore something that wasn't there in American uh, 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 policy. Um, and uh, the biggest disappointment was not Trump. The biggest disappointment was Barack Obama, uh, whom we knew, many of us knew as, a, as an activist before he became a candidate for the presidency with a very enlightened and progressive view on the situation, a very knowledgeable position on Palestine, which had no impact whatsoever on his policy once he was the president of the United States. So, uh, but you know, in the book, uh, I just use this opportunity for one, two sentence. In the book, I also challenged the, another mythology about the American policy. I mean, people, in the, especially in the Arab world and in Palestine, seem to think in a determinist way about American policy. It always was anti-Palestinian and always will be anti-Palestinian. First of all, historically, it's not correct. In fact, the American policy on Palestine was far more progressive than the rest of the West when it came to Palestine. That's uh, one of the reasons that Israel established, I, I tell about it in the book, Israel established APAC and particularly strengthened APAC at the days of President Kennedy. Because President Kennedy wanted to return to the United Nations and ask the United Nations why it doesn't impose Resolution 194, the forces the return of the refugees on Israel. And that really frightened the Israelis. Uh, uh, so uh, you'll find in the book a lot of new information about the Israeli government uh, uh, reacted to the intelligence they had of the idea of Kennedy to bring back the Palestine issue, not as a humanitarian issue, but also as a political issue. And they were very worried about it. So I think it's important to remember that. And therefore, <coughs> I don't think it's unlikely that these positions will change again, especially when with the undercurrent that we see today in American society, which are far more pro-Palestinian than it ever was before, especially the young generation, including the young uh, Jewish generation. Uh, and I think uh, that's why I mentioned in my talk that Israel relies even more on the Christian Zionist lobby than it uh, relies on the Jewish lobby nowadays in, in America. Yeah, uh, I have a question. In your book, uh, you and also other historians show that the Zionists, they had a plan to expel the Palestinians uh, mm -hmm. even before it happened for decades. The same with uh, the occupation of the West Bank and the other territories. Do you think the Israeli government has such a plan today to get rid of yeah. the Palestinian, different Palestinian populations when an opportunity comes? Yeah. Uh, this is a question I'm being often asked by Palestinians, of course, because uh, if I claim that settler colonialism is a, a structure, not just a political event, then the impulse to have the territory without the people remains as, as an Israeli basic idea. Now, of course, circumstances change with time. And uh, one of the things I'm trying to show in my book, The Biggest Prison on Earth, and I also mention it in this book, is that the Israeli uh, governments and, uh, seriously discussed the possibility of doing an ethnic cleansing after the occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, but decided against it. They said, uh, eventually they said, 
Uh, there is no war. There is television. We're going to expel people we already expelled in 48. It won't be easy and so on. So they realize the limitations on such policies. I think, to be honest, until today, I think most of the people who hold power in Israel, whether they are uh, generals or the head of the security services or the politicians, uh, would not contemplate, to my mind, massive ethnic cleansing on the way. But there are other ways, you know, it's, uh, for example, uh, uh, Lieberman, who was the Minister of Defense, is a great supporter of expelling part of the Palestinians inside Israel into the West Bank. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the actual policy of Israel, I mean, in the greater Jerusalem area, from 1967 until today, Israel expelled more than 350,000 Palestinians. Individually, not collectively. And all, as, you, as you probably, if you're familiar with the situation there, you know that Palestinians who live to study abroad cannot go back. Uh, if they uh, uh, violate uh, all kinds of municipal, municipal regulation, they can be uh, deported to the West Bank at least. So ethnic cleansing is, is now played in a way that it doesn't necessarily mean taking you out of the country to another country. It can also mean move you from one place in Palestine to a more convenient place in Palestine for the state. So this will continue. This, by the way, is taking place on a daily basis in Palestine. So it's not a question for the future. It's what's happening. What you are talking about, the massive kind of expulsion, I would not rule it out. I definitely wouldn't rule it out. I don't think they have moral inhibitions for doing this. I think they have political inhibitions. There is a far more transparency with the media today and so on that I cannot see it happening, but I'm not willing to, to say to Palestinian uh, audiences that I can assure them that it won't happen. I, I think the main problem for Palestinians, and this is what is so difficult to work on in the West, the main problem for the Palestinians is that the way they are abused and mistreated uh, and oppressed on a daily basis is so minimal compared to big dramatic events such as the one that unfolded in Syria and Iraq in 2012 and 2013. And the media attention to daily abuse of one person or two person or the killing of two persons and so on is not, the media attention is not very long when it comes to such individual cases. How can I convince, this is my big challenge with the Western media, how can I convince the Western media to look at a cumulative way in these injustices, not on a daily basis? And that's, that's an ongoing, you know, the Palestinians call it al-Nakba al-Mustamira, the ongoing catastrophe. This ongoing catastrophe uh, is the main uh, crime I think Israel perpetrates as a state and a society against the Palestinians. And... Uh, how to stop it is, is, is a huge question. Uh, when you think that there are no forces from the inside that would do it, when you think that the Palestinian movement is too weak to stop it, and the international community is too indifferent of doing it. Uh, it's a big question, but I'm, I'm sure that I'm optimistic by nature, and, and I think these things will happen. Uh, I don't think it will continue forever, and uh, the combination of Palestinian steadfastness the decency among quite a lot of people around the world. And I think even my own Jewish society is beginning to show signs 
of understanding that they are themselves in not an easy situation. Uh, and power is not everything. But maybe I'm too optimistic. I don't know. Okay, there are three questions. So yeah. uh, yeah. um, the new historians, and you are a number among them, uh, I think really have been a major factor in challenging this narrative. And I was in a bookstore today, and to my knowledge, I don't think that the ethnic cleansing of Palestine is, is published in Czech. In fact, I think the only people belonging to the new historians who have books published in Czech is Betty Morris on a, uh, a, a history of the Mossad, mm -hmm. a puff piece. Right. And by some miracle, Shlomo Zand uh, got the invention of the, the uh, Jewish people published. Right. And I have no idea how. Um, can you explain uh, any reason why the Zionist narrative is so strongly maintained in the Czech First of all, uh, Noam Chomsky's book in mind was translated to, to Czech, so, uh, so we... I don't know if it's in the bookshop, but at least it existed. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I think that there are two explanations which are partial, and definitely it deserves deeper analysis, and maybe it should be left to uh, scientists and scholars here to, to answer this question. But my understanding that, uh, and it's not just about the Czech Republic, it's about most of the countries in Central and Eastern Europe that moved dramatically from the communist era to the post-communist era. Most of these countries, like the Czech uh, uh, Republic, have not a very easy uh, history when it comes to the Holocaust. We can put the blame as much as we want on the Germans, but we know that there is a lot to be said about the local population's complacency uh, and indifference to what happened. Not in a general form, but enough to explain a certain guilt complex that uh, uh, does not allow you to go very far with criticizing uh, the, even Czech Jews uh, who are now in Israel, uh, but rather give them carte blanche to do whatever uh, they do. This is why in the uh, Jewish Museum in this city, you have the absurd uh, ending of the trip that you do in the museum. You are told about the horrible uh, uh, um, fate of the Jewish community in, in Prague during the Second World War, and it ends with the message that the Czech Republic gave weapons to the Jewish state in 48, as if this was the compensation for the way uh, uh, the municipality of Prague behaved under the Nazi occupation. Uh, this is bizarre, to say the least. Uh, I mean, I used, I'm tired, but in my early lecture, I used m more dirty words about it. Uh, uh, this, is, this is bizarre, to say the least, to, to, to connect the Czech Republic military support for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine with the fate of the Jewish community in the city uh, of Prague. But this is the, how the narrative works and it has to do. Another explanation, I think, uh, which is important is, of course, the communist uh, uh, regimes were very pro-Palestinians. And, 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 and a pro-Palestinian position is also, I, I think, is identified with the communist era. And like all transition in this country, in, in many other countries, 
transitions sometimes tend to throw the baby together with the with the bath, and and not to and not to look at every and look at everything that was before as negative as if it had nothing positive to to, to offer. And the Czech Republic is a classical example for this. Um, uh, so I think this is one of the victims, if you want, of this. Say, but as I say, I think these are partial explanations. I'm sure we need something more uh, profound than what I gave you. But I think it is important to read, to analyze it, because we need the support of the Czech people, uh, among other people in, in, in Europe, to uh, end the suffering of the people in Palestine, because they are paying for something Europe did to the Jews, as if they were the ones who perpetrated all these years of anti-Semitism. And, and I think we... We need to find, we, we all have responsibility in, in that respect. This is a quick one. Um, if I wanted to keep myself educated on the current, what's happening in that mm -hmm. area, uh, what is a good news source or one that could be trusted, if you know what I mean? Because I've seen many media and they, pretty much differ in the way how yeah. uh, how how they report on the current issues and sometimes the differences are slight sometimes they're big and you know i don't know who to trust yeah. essentially well i'm i'm going to disappoint you there is no objective view about palestine you have to ask yourself if you you're too young to remember but let's say you are three times older than you are and you would have remembered the time of apartheid South Africa. And you would ask yourself, oh, there is one newspaper says that apartheid South Africa is a democratic, humane system, and one says it is not. And I don't know whom to trust. I think as, as a young person, uh, you can find enough sources, and don't worry whether they are objective or not. Really, this is not the issue. You can find enough sources and lead, let your moral position lead you. And that's the main problem for Israel. Anyone with a modicum of decency in them would say that whatever the uh, debate in Palestine is, who is right and who is wrong, to imprison people without trial, to demolish their homes, to send children to jail, to shoot young men, in, there is no any circumstances that justify such actions and take it from there. Then you can say, I mean, at least I know as a human being, this is something I don't accept. I may then become a bit more confused about what the solution is and so on. That's why I say people have two kinds of responsibility from the outside. The major responsibility is to stop uh, what's happening on the ground in Palestine today. For that, you don't need many resources, believe me. Uh, uh, what, what you need more sources for is if you want to be engaged in the whole idea of a solution and so on. But we should separate the two things. You see, the main Israeli formula was all the atrocities will stop once there is peace. I suggest a different formula. Stop the atrocities and let's talk about peace, not the other way around. And I think this is very, very, very important. I'll give you an example. Israel has a, a, a program which is called Discovery, Taglit. Discovery brings young American Jews to Israel with the hope that after a tour in Israel, 
they would be convinced to do Aliyah, immigrate to Israel. Now, in the early plans of the tours, it included the West Bank. Now, these American Jewish kids are clever, informative. And many of them who came back to America became activists in the BDS and the Boycott Divestment Sanction Movement after the Israeli guy took them to see the occupation. So now they have a different tour. They take them from the airport to a discotheque in Tel Aviv and back to the aeroplane <laughs> just to make sure that they don't see anything else, right? Uh, but but uh, uh, it just shows you that you don't need profound reading if you have a constitution which says to yourself, uh, uh, occupation, colonization, oppression is something I'm against. And I don't care whether the oppressor is Muslim or the oppressor is Christian or a secular or a communist or a Jew. Oppression is oppression. And it should be, nobody should be exempted from our anger at their oppression. And unfortunately, as I try to explain in this lecture, you cannot have a state of your own in someone else's homeland if they don't agree to it without oppressing them. What else can you do? What else, what else can you do? Now, we have to help people to say after three generations of settlers, the settlers will not go anywhere, the Palestinians will not go anywhere, and let's try and build something. And I ch judge, challenge everyone in this room to say to me, that at least from a moral position, from a moral point of view, the idea that all the people who live today in Palestine and Israel, all the people who live between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean, are not entitled to live under a political regime where everybody is equal, regardless of their gender, race, uh, nationality, or religion. I, I challenge anyone to tell me, no, it's a bad idea. It's a much better idea that some group would have privileges. I mean, we, we don't accept it anywhere else. Why do we accept it there? I, I know why we accept it there. <laughs> I wrote 10 books explaining why we accept it there. But for you, if you ask me this kind of question, I don't think you have to be confused morally. You can be confused politically. That is, how exactly to solve it, why is it not working. But morally, believe me, talk to anyone five minutes and don't need profound knowledge to understand what they see is not acceptable on a human level. It's not acceptable. You cannot accept it. That's all. Still on the independent media yesterday, we had also Sheer Hever speaking with Elon Papa, and he works uh, at the Real News Network. And if you want to follow any international events, and especially on Palestine, Sheer Hever is a great analyst that is also Israeli, is political economist, and you will find much more uh, reports in depth there, the Real News Network. Well, I just maybe one remark. When you mentioned that the uh, Americans are using like the name Tomahawk for uh, yeah. like, the indigenous name of the thing of the people of America, I think Israelis are using something called David's Link, the anti-missile yes. system. So like that could be yeah. like a parallel. But my question <laughs> is. Um, that I read in one of Norman Kinkelstein's book that the Americans were not 
particularly interested in the Israel before, or I mean in between 1948 and 1967, but they only massively invested in the Israeli military budget after Israel won the 67 war and uh, they basically saw it as a strategic asset for their Middle Eastern policy. So maybe if you agree with this, and a second part of the question, um, do you think and do you agree with the Norman Finkelstein and promise that the Holocaust has been exploited for uh, Israeli benefit and for the war crimes they are committing? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, for the first point, I, it's true that I think he's right in saying that uh, America was not interested particularly in the question of Palestine. I would argue a bit, it was more than that. I think that basically, the, uh, especially the Eisenhower and Kennedy administration could not understand why Israel is not allowing the Palestinian refugees to return. And none of the Israeli argumentation looked very reasonable to them. Uh, I mean, uh, this is something which is interesting because um, imagine that Israel would have allowed the Palestinian refugees to return, how the history would have been different, but it didn't happen, it didn't happen. Uh, as for the second part, it's very important, uh, Norman's point, and he's not the only one who's making it, but I think yes. I think the manipulation of Holocaust memory uh, in Israel is, is very important to understand uh, uh, how Israel works, uh, how does it uh, uh, provide for itself immunity in the world through that manipulation. And uh, uh, there were several good books about how it's been done. I just would mention two important ways in which it is done. One is by what one scholar, Edith Zertal, called, and also Tom Segev, uh, the Nazification of the Palestinians. That is, you, you want to create the, the sense that uh, the Palestinians are the new Nazis. And then you highlight the connection that the Palestinian leader in the mandatory period, Hajamin al-Husseini, had with the Nazis. If you remember, Benjamin Netanyahu even claimed that he's the one who gave Hitler the idea for the extermination of the Jews. Uh, or you, you do like Menachem Begin did, uh, describing Arafat in the bunker in Beirut in 1982 as the, um, uh, the bunker of Hitler in, in Berlin in the end of the Second World War. And we have a lot of examples. I can give you one interesting example. Uh, there is an encyclopedia of the Holocaust in Israel. Uh, and now the, 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 the main entry, understandably, is Hitler. But the second longest entry is Hajamin al-Husseini. Uh, and, and that shows you the kind of uh, the way it's done. The second way it is done, which is even more worrying, I think, in many ways, is the fact that you are not allowed to universalize the Holocaust memory. It has to be a Jewish memory. And uh, I think that's very bad. It's very wrong to do it this way. And uh, 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 you don't even, you Zionize the memory. You don't even Judaize it, you Zionize. And therefore, uh, uh, the only, I remember in school, the only Jews we learned about in the Holocaust were those who were rebelling against the Nazis. We didn't talk about the Jews who were, our teacher told us, went like slaughter, like a sheep to the slaughter and so on. Uh, I have to say that there is an alternative culture now in Israel. And one of the ceremonies I take place, uh, take part in, is what we call the old, Israel has, a, as you know, a Holocaust memory day. Uh, we do an alternative ceremony. We lit six candles for the six million Jews, but we lit seven candles 
And the seventh candle is for all the genocides that occurred uh, uh, in the world, not just uh, that. And the, the Israeli government is very much against it. They always try to block our, our ceremony, and they're very angry with this very idea that you can, can do it. So yeah, the Holocaust memory is, is, is helping to manipulate fear uh, uh, and mistrust uh, in the possibility of living in something which is not purely Jewish uh, and controlled uh, by Jews. And I think it, it of course, uh, uh, achieves the, the opposite uh, objective, to my mind. Thank you very much uh, uh, for the lecture. I completely agree with uh, your point that uh, if you spend uh, five minutes in the West Bank, uh, you find the situation totally morally unacceptable. I had the privilege to be there two weeks ago when I spent a few days in Gaza as well, which is even much more appealing uh, uh, and truly shocking experience. But uh, uh, it only uh, leads me to um, the point of uh, what do you, uh, what are your thoughts about the solution of the situation? Because uh, as much as it sounds perfectly morally sound and logical to say there is 12 million people uh, living in the historic Palestine and there is no point how you can deprive them of having the same, same rights, at the same time, this uh, logic basically does not uh, take into account the perception of uh, Jewish communities as a nation mm -hmm. to preserve the state of Israel as a guardian of the Jewish interests uh, yeah. throughout the world. And uh, I think uh, if you individualize the people like everyone is equal in their rights, you are correct. But if you think about the uh, national community in that respect, then the demographic comes into account, then all those fears mm -hmm. that uh, they will cease to exist uh, come into account. And so, and I don't think you've addressed this, uh, this mm -hmm. fear, and I think those fears are legitimate. Yeah. May I add one, yeah, yeah. Um, one maybe personal question, yeah. which, which also uh, well, uh, goes in the same, same direction uh, uh, concerning the, the hopes uh, or the scenario for the future. Uh, the question would be why you actually left Israel and if there is, if, if there is really place in Israel for people who uh, for, let's say, Jewish people who think in your yeah. way. Um, and if not, or not that much, uh, uh, how do you think things can change yeah. in Israel itself? Thank you. Yes. Uh, let me start by saying that there are many ways in which we, on the ground in Israel and Palestine, first of all, struggle against this reality. I'll give you one example. Uh, I have two boys who, according to the Israeli law, were supposed to serve in the army. And like many other young people and their mothers, who are conscious enough of what their children would do, refused to go to serve in the army with the possible price of going to jail. So it's not that it's, it is not static. 
So, so you, you, you struggle in any way possible for the, to limit the atrocities as much as you can. Uh, and you, as me, you su would su I support the, the boycott on Israel as, as a means of, of stopping it. So I don't think there is nothing to do. There's a lot you can do, if not uh, 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 to uh, finish the kind of injustice on the ground, but at least to limit it to a certain extent, you know? Uh, and, and uh, you know, in some cases it works uh, uh, better uh, than others. So that's for your first part of the question. Of, uh, it's not, as, that's why I said in another answer, it's not just about a solution, which is, a, and I will get to, to your point about the, the fear and the collective uh, Jewish identity in a moment. But uh, first of all, I think uh, your responsibility is not so much about how would Jews and Palestinians live together. That's the responsibility of the Jews and the Palestinians in Israel to find a way forward. But you do have a responsibility uh, uh, to check whether your weapons are used to uh, destroy life in Gaza or in the West Bank. You do have responsibility where your, your government's policy gives international immunity to violation of human rights and civil rights. You d it doesn't have to be connected to the right solution. That's a different campaign, to my mind. Now to your question, which I think is an important question. You're right, I didn't address it because I still think that my main attention is to the Palestinian suffering and less to the Israeli apprehensions. But I'm not underestimating these apprehensions. Believe me, I, 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 I will, as I said, I'm, even if I'm a flawed product of the Israeli education system, I'm an Israeli Jew. I, I was born in Israel, I went to the Israeli army. I know my society well enough to know their fears and, apprehen and apprehensions and their past. So, uh, 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 and I understand some of them and some of them, as I said, look to me now ridiculous. Fear is not a ridiculous idea. Fear is a genuine uh, human uh, uh, idea. And of course, it could also be manipulated, as I said to the gentleman who asked about uh, the Holocaust uh, uh, um, uh, manipulation of the Holocaust memory. But fear is genuine. I agree. Fear is genuine. And given the history of anti-Semitism and so on, it's even more understandable, if you want. But there is, I, I'll give you an, an interesting example. I, I've been working in the UK in the last uh, 11 years. And when I talk to liberal Jewish communities in, in the UK, they say to me, uh, we regard Israel as a safe insurance if anything bad happens to Jews. And, uh, but on the other hand, we are not supporting it a carte blanche. There are certain red lines that we would not accept. So my first answer to the first question that they say about insurance, I said, I'm not sure as an insurance agent, uh, Israel is, can sell itself as the safest place for Jews. Since 1945, the only place where Jews were killed in large numbers is Israel not anywhere else. So I'm not sure it's exactly a safe place for, for a Jew. I think Jews are much safer in Prague than they are in Tel Aviv or Jerusalem, or definitely in the occupied uh, West Bank. But the second point is more important. I ask them, okay, give me an example of a red line. And they say, well, if Israel would become an apartheid state, we would not support it. And I say, well, maybe it already happened. So what, what are you doing now? So, I mean, there is... The, you have to understand that you cannot put as an absolute value the wish to have, to be a collective national 
movement and to have a safe place at any price, at any price. You don't uh, uh, find a flat for, let's say, abused children, battered women, by throwing people from their flats from the window because you were looking for a safe place for, for these victims of domestic uh, violence. You, you don't say, I don't care, the first flat I find, I throw the people out because I need for these women a, a safe shelter. That's exactly how Zionism worked. And I will connect it to your, to your question. First of all, I, I didn't leave Israel. I was expelled from my university, uh, but I'm still uh, uh, living there part of the time. And uh, Israelis treat Jewish citizenship, thank God, as a sacred idea. So I hope that they will continue to do this. Because I, I like Gideon Levy and others, uh, I believe that we are in a comfort zone, in a, a, in a privileged zone, and therefore we have a responsibility to do what we do. We, we have actually less expectation for people who are less privileged uh, in doing this. We think the privilege is, is a liability sometimes, not just uh, uh, an asset. Um, sec secondly, to, to your question, uh, are these ideas only uh, mine ideas? No, no, definitely. I, I think that if I compare it to 20 years ago, I think there is the beginning of the emergence of an alternative culture in Israel among the Jews, Jewish Israelis, especially among young people. Uh, it, there's all kinds of indicators for this. There is a, a, an, an amazing increase in the number of young Israeli Jews who refuse to go to the army, which is a phenomenon we didn't have before. They don't want to be part of the occupying. Uh, uh, power. Uh, there is an amazing increase in many ways uh, in the wish to be normal, if you want, normal life, and not accepting the Israeli uh, classical explanation why you cannot have a normal life, uh, and so on. They, they know too much because of the, of, of, of the internet and, and their ability to, to be connected to alternative media, and so on. So I think I feel far more at home in Israel today, in a funny way, than I was uh, when I was forced to leave. Because I think I have, I didn't have, I, I can give you one example, which I think will uh, uh, show. Uh, I was one of the first Israeli Jews to support the, probably I was the first, to support the boycott divestment sanction uh, movement when it appeared. But I felt very lonely. So I said I needed a list of people to publish in Haaretz that support the BDS. So I gathered six names. One of them was dead, but I didn't tell anyone because <laughs> people didn't know that he was dead. The other one was in Italy, and people didn't know that he already left for Italy, and, and the other three were real people. Uh, so we had six people on the first list that supported the BDS from within. Today, the BDS from within movement is, has 170 academics subscribing to it inside Israel. So yes, the, and it's not surprising, it's not surprising. I try to say it in this lecture. There is, as long as Israelis believe that you could be both democratic and racist, you can be both an ethnic state and a state that respects human rights, as long as people believed in it, it was very difficult to put forward my ideas. People would say, no, we don't need you. We don't know we can be a liberal colonizer, we can be an enlightened ethnic cleanser, we can be a socialist uh, 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 um, uh, occupier. Uh, and this is not working anymore. And there is this, this, you, they have, whether they like it or not, this is the only decision which is now important for them. Do we 
in order to have this, what you call safe garden. Does the safe uh, uh, garden of Judaism more important than human rights and civil rights? Or is it as important? And the solution we had so far is not working for that. And they will have to find out, of course, and it's not surprising, I'm sure it's very humane to say that you prefer to have a Jewish state over a democracy. I'm not surprised, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not even judging them severely for their initial reaction by saying, and we saw it in all these Israeli last elections and we see it in this election as well. We will see it. Israelis prefer, if, if they have a choice between a democracy and a Jewish state, they will always prefer a Jewish state. But I think this is the national, because they have don't understand yet fully and haven't seen fully what are the implications of that decision. And I think once they will see this implication, once they will see this implication, I think this, their position would change. But it would take time and you need also Palestinian unity and you need the changes in the Arab world. It's not in, done in a vacuum. But I think we should work towards it because it can happen. It can happen. Thank you very much. I think these were uh, fantastic closing up I agree. <laughs> thoughts. Because uh, I'm tired, uh, not because it was so good. After but. your <laughs> second lecture and second uh, discussion uh, uh, on this day. Right. And I also think that we have uh, to leave uh, this building around nine o'clock so okay. uh, it fit uh, in, a, uh, in a great way. Thank you once more for thank your you. lecture, for uh, attending this uh, discussion and, and thank you also also to, to all of you that, that you were active listening and, and uh, participating. Uh, have a nice rest of the evening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much.